Good evening, everybody. Welcome once again to the uh, Inspirability Talks that we're holding here at uh, Airability. Pretty much one year on, uh, we're 23 talks down and counting. This has been a wonderful journey bringing the world of aviation into your living rooms, onto your phone, wherever it is you may be connected to the internet and uh, listening to these uh, these really great uh, insightful podcasts uh, that um, we have been running. Um, so we are, what, three weeks away now, I think, from uh, the clocks changing and also pretty much, I believe, the same weekend uh, as we can actually start flying recreationally, albeit solo. Uh, and then a few weeks after that, we can start taking passengers and doing what we all love, and that's getting out and about and enjoying aviation face to face. But uh, meanwhile, before that, it is another installment of our Inspirability Talks to keep aerobility afloat to keep delivering what it is we do for the disabled community across the UK, allowing everybody to stay connected, but also to donate. So if uh, you do uh, feel a bit generous this evening, you can support us uh, by donating some uh, of your hard-earned cash to uh, the AirAbility coffers. You can see uh, along the bottom there how to do it, and we would very much uh, be delighted to uh, uh, have your support to keep our wonderful operations working uh, at uh, Blackbush. Okay, well, this evening we have a, a special guest, Mandy Hickson. Uh, she's fresh from International Women's Day, uh, having f spent what I've just heard an entire day doing a lot of these talks and uh, really putting uh, the word out there about women in aviation uh, and women in business in general. Uh, and so it's uh, it's real it's a real pleasure to to talk to Mandy uh, this evening. Mandy, as I've said, uh, she has spent uh, a career in aviation. She was a former fast jet pilot in the Royal Air Force. Uh, now she's a motivational speaker and author. So she's put all of those lessons learned um, and experiences into a book that we'll hear about a bit later on. Uh, but um, Mandy, she joined the Royal Air Force um, in 1994 and undertook a journey that she thinks began around about the age of 13 when she joined the Air Training Corps and some inspirational stories from her grandfather. Uh, but perhaps the bug really took hold when she had her first uh, flight in a chipmunk uh, on the uh, air experience flying there uh, that uh, perhaps a lot of us have experienced ourselves uh, many moons ago. And that set her on the course for a PPL. Uh, and then she went to university uh, and uh, joined the University Air Squadron and, and then was uh, fortunate to be uh, around and available, wanting to join the Royal Air Force as a pilot just when the rules changed to accept female uh, fast jet pilots. And there she undertook her journey, um, elementary flying training, the Takano, the Hawk and the Tornado, you know, going through a career and a training period where the Royal Air Force was undergoing change and, you know, having to evolve and adapt to the, the you know, how, how society was taking on uh, the, uh, the females into the Royal Air Force and in, into the front line. So we'll hear about that um, and also about the motivational speaking. Talking of speaking, that's enough from me. I'm now going to welcome Mandy on the screen. How are you, Mandy? Hi, John. Good to be here. Very well, thank you. Glad to hear it. So how's the voice after a, a very busy day uh, talking into your camera? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very strange concept, isn't it? Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, around International Women's Day, it's always quite a busy time of year for me, which is great. Um, but normally I have to be very selective as to which events I can go to and what physically I can get to. Um, obviously, in the virtual world, it's a dream. So eight <laughs> events in two days. Um, wow. I'm, even I'm impressed by myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, very impressive indeed. Well, getting the message out there, I suppose, you know, in uh, 
ironically, because we are virtual, you can spread your uh, your wings. So wings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, the way, the format we're going to use this evening is Mandy's got a um, uh, a really wonderful presentation that, that just charts her career and what she's been up to uh, and what she's doing now. So what we're going to do, Mandy, we're going to turn it to you so you can uh, get your slides ready to uh, to give us that wonderful journey. And then afterwards, we'll um, we'll have a bit of Q&A, a little bit of a chat about some of those high points in your career. And and then, um, you know, we'll close it off at around about uh, eight quarter past eight. So if that works for you, Mandy, I'll turn it over to you. Perfect. Thanks so much, John. Um, guys, what can I say? I'm loving seeing all these little points coming up that we've got people joining now from Texas and from Wales. Well, I'm glad to see that we're here from Texas and Wales because uh, you're going to see some pictures of me flying in Wales as well. So um, without further ado, let's let me share my um, screen. So fantastic. Thanks so much there, Chad. So, guys, um, I'm going to talk today about changing your flight path because I think so much of what I have done in my career has been about small changes that have happened that have caught me unawares at times that I didn't necessarily know I was going to go on that journey until I ended up on it. Um, but without further ado, ladies and gents, please step into my office. Boom. Basically, guys, that's how you take a 17-year career and you compress it into a one-minute pop video. I think that's the way forward in life, is it not? Short and sweet. Um, now, the time I spent serving in the Royal Air Force, I absolutely loved it, flying on the Tornado GR4. I had never realised, actually, um, how few women had done this. And I mean that in all honesty, until in February, about five years ago, something like that, I was invited down to London to a tornado pilots or aircrew reunion, should I say. I opened the doors of this bar to be met by a sea of 400 men. Now, I thought happy days, actually, if I'm brutally honest, because I've been married for quite a long time. Uh, and I started to look around the room and I thought, oh, hold on a minute. Surely there should just be at least one other woman here. Uh, there were two. There was Jo, Jo Salter, who I'm sure many of you will recognise her name. She was the absolute pioneer, the very first female fast jet pilot in the RAF. I was the second Tornado GR4 pilot. And then Kirsty Murphy, I'm sure many of you will recognise her as well. She was our very first female red, red arrows pilot and only, should I say. We had this photo taken and we popped it out onto social media and we asked the question, what's the collective noun for a group of female tornado pilots? Yeah, that was a mistake, basically, because we got hit by this barrage of insults and very witty banter. But one I really liked was you're a flamboyance. And so I am sticking with that one because it is the only one, frankly, that is clean enough to repeat here today. 
You know, the thing I loved about that job, though, it's the fact it's challenging and different. One day you're taking off in a jet that's clean. There's nothing hanging from it. You're performing to its maximum G-force, often pulling up to seven times the force of gravity. You're involved in, in dogfighting or air-to-air -air combat. Now, I know the Tornado GR4 is not known for its dogfighting capability, but this was the one time of the year when we would get involved in it. Um, I know what you're all thinking. You're all thinking Top Gun. Oh, yes. Well, I'll be honest, when I turned up to my squadron, so was I. I thought I've made it. I'm on the front line. I'm walking straight onto the set of Top Gun. It's time to change my name from Mandy. There were the likes of Ma Maverick and Viper and Iceman around, after all. Uh, unfortunately, my thoughts for Ice Maiden did not land well. I'm six foot tall, and there was a programme on in America at the time called Sesame Street, so no real guesses to guess what my call sign became. Oh, yes. Welcome to the wonderful world of Big Bird. Now, that's disappointing. What can I say? But this, this is what I truly love to do. You know, taking off in this 35 million pounds worth of hardware, flying through the valleys of the Lake District. You come around the corner into Wales. Oh, my favourite place. The glacial landscape, flying through a valley, hugging the bottom of the valley as you go. And as you come around a corner, you look up onto the hills. You see somebody walking and you know they are enjoying the peace and quiet of the countryside. You think, uh-huh, they cannot hear or see me yet, but I can see them. And as you approach, you suddenly get this overwhelming urge just to slip your throttles into reheat. As you coast right by, you're thrust back into your seat, accelerating to 550 miles an hour. And at that critical stage of flying, one wrong move, it will all go horribly wrong. What do you do? Turn the jet on its side and give a very casual and jaunty wave out the top as I did on one occasion to be caught on camera, to walk into the squadron building and hear my boss summoning me. He said, Mandy, have you been waving at the sponsors again, also known as taxpayers? And thank you for your donations over the years. I said, uh, I have. And he said, I love this photo. I want it out there on the wall. But I'm often asked how I got into this. You know, and John touched on this at the beginning. I grew up hearing stories of my grandfather. He was a Second World War fighter pilot. And I heard this wonderful quote recently that really resonates me, with me. And it was from the very first female astronaut from America, um, Sally Rice. And she basically said, you cannot be what you cannot see. And actually for myself, having role models around that were in aviation was what stimulated me to get into it. So at the age of 14, I joined the Air Training Corps on the very first night it opened its doors to girls. I was based up in Manchester. Oh, my goodness. I flew from Woodvale and, as John said, a chipmunk and then the bulldog. Oh, I absolutely loved it. I set my sights at that point on becoming one of the first female fast jet pilots. But as John said, this was the time when we were in transition. Women weren't allowed to be fast jet pilots on the front line. Uh, and the competition, regardless of gender, was that it's incredibly brutal. But I continued to pursue my dreams. And eventually, after the RAF changing the rules, me finally getting through. In fact, I failed all the aptitude tests, but I finally got taken on as a test case. And I was finally able to progress all the way through to RAF Valley in Anglesey. Now, it's where Prince William was based, but sadly, we never overlapped. Otherwise, the royal wedding could have been very different. And who knows, I could have been the Oprah Winfrey show last night. Uh, I hope not. Anyway, I was three trips away from graduating, from gaining my RAF wings when I failed a flight. Now, I thought, not a problem. I failed many in the past. I took it again the next day, but I failed it again. 
And now I am in a spiral of loss of confidence. I'm given three more flights, each one progressively getting worse and worse. And eventually I'm put up for a chop ride. This is humour in the military, by the way. You're at your lowest ebb. You're facing basically leaving the Royal Air Force. And this is what goes on to the operations board. Yes, the chop ride. If you don't pass the flight, you potentially could be leaving the Air Force. The trip I'd failed, you know, I'd learned how to fly the aircraft, manoeuvre at low level, bombing, strafing, close formation. And now we were putting all these skills together in tactical or battle. Two aeroplanes heading off at very low level. I mean, in some areas of the country where it's operational low flying is allowed, you can drop down to 100 feet. Now you're trying to hit targets within five seconds. We had no moving map at the time, no GPS or no head up display even. We had a paper match, a stop map, a stopwatch and a compass. I know that probably sounds very familiar to many of the PPLers out there. But there we were. Hitting targets within such a small time frame means that you've got to be very accurate. You've got to keep an amazing amount of situational awareness. But you've also got an additional problem. There's an enemy airborne. Now, they're also called our instructors. And they're trying to get behind you into your six o'clock to simulate shooting you down. And you have one blind spot when you fly. It's in your six o'clock. So if you're a singleton, you're guaranteed almost to fail. But if you've got a wingman, suddenly you've got that mutual support. And it means that you must coordinate every single turn. You can't just turn to the left. You're now two individuals. So as I'm coming up for a turn, we've got to think ahead. We've got to progress. You've basically got to come up to a turn, both pull up. You cross at a perpendicular angle and you roll out in perfect formation. And that's where I was failing, basically, the battle turns. Every time I rolled out, I was in the wrong place. So what do we do when we're feeling stressed? Well, we tend to isolate. And that's what I did. I used to go back to my room every single night, get my cardboard cockpit out and sit there on my bed, flicking the switches, making radio calls, indeed answering my own radio calls. There's a knock on my door. It's one of my course mates, Rob. Now, many of you might recognise Rob. He was on the fighter pilot programme. He's the guy just to my right in the picture. He was called Puppy. Now, Rob was the youngest on the course and was someone that I hold dear to my heart. He's an absolute star. He ended up being the boss of four squadron at RAF Valley as well. Um, he knocks my door and he says, man, let's go out. We're taking you out for an evening. Now, this was not looking good for me because I've got my chop ride the next day. But he said, Mandy, trust me. And when he said that, I thought, what do I have to lose? Anyway, he took us down to the bike sheds initially. Trust waned pretty quickly, got onto our bikes. We cycled off to this parade square. We're there waiting in the darkness with the remaining members of my course who basically would now spend the next three hours pretending to be aeroplanes on their bikes by cycling up and down this parade square with one of us yelling, 30 starboard, 60 port, rotate. We did all the manoeuvres. I couldn't get my head around in the air on the ground, obviously without the vertical separation because it's not Harry Potter, okay. And suddenly the penny dropped and I thought, oh my goodness, this is so easy. Why could I not do this before? But when we're stuck in that rut, we get that tunnel vision and we keep on doing things in the same way. And then we're shocked when our results are exactly the same. And that's why we need that cognitive diversity. We need people that think in different ways, that see things in different ways, not just cultural or gender diversity, but cognitive diversity. And that's what these guys had given me. They'd seen a different way of doing it and they'd seen a way to get me through. I flew the trip the next day. At the end, I opened my canopy. We got out. My instructor descended the steps. And just as I turned, I saw him kneeling down and kissing the floor. And I thought, yeah, that's not boding well. You know, he's mainly relieved I've not killed him, surely. He looked at me and he shook his head. He just went, what on earth was that, man? And I said, oh, no, please. And he said, do you know what? 
you've gone from bad to worse in this last week. But he said, that was unbelievable. You finally brought your mojo to work. He said, what's happened? I told him the story about what the guys had done. And he just said, God, that's incredible. He said, I know you're not in direct competition, but there's only six spaces, you know, starting on courses pretty much in the next few months. You're number seven. So actually those course mates that know that, know that now they might have to go back into that holding system for maybe another year. So they've pretty much jeopardized their own career advancement to get you through. And when he said that, it makes you realize what being part of a team truly is all about. It's about trusting in each other. It's about selfless behavior. It's about going the extra mile when there's nothing to gain yourselves. And there's a reason that team is spelt as it is. It's because together everyone achieves more. And you might go, well, yeah, apart from the guys that jeopardize their advancement. But actually, when it was reported up, the commander in chief of the uh, squadron basically has the ability to keep people on as creamies where they can take top people out of flying training and they stay as instructors. And it meant that my entire course graduated onto our aircraft types of choice. Um, mine was to fly the mighty Finn on two squadron at RAF Marham. What an honour it was to serve. Now, I don't look very honoured on that photo. I look actually quite angry. Um, I think I'm focused. I'm in my bubble. I'm about to taxi. I've just been told that I'm heading out to exercise red flag in America. Oh, my goodness. This was like my golden ticket. Just outside Las Vegas in a base called Nellis Air Force Base. The philosophy is that you'll train harder than you will ever have to fight for real. You're up against the best pilots that America have in the form of red air or the baddies, basically. Their sole job in life is to shoot you down, and they are really, really good at it. Um, I was put to fly with a very experienced nav called Michelle Dupont. I mean, I was thrilled to be with Michelle and all the ladies going, oh, yeah, we know why, because he looks like George Clooney. I mean, it was more than that. I mean, he was so experienced. It was like having a mentor sitting two metres behind me. I had a hilarious incident as well with Michelle one evening. I got dressed up. We were going out on a squadron night out. Uh, I arrived five minutes late to make an entrance. I was wearing a dress, not my grow bag. And um, as I walked in, I coughed. Everyone looked up. But Michelle and my eyes met across the crowded room. And he said, oh, Mandy, you're looking beautiful this evening. At which point the guy next to him, Rich, just hit him across the back of the head. And went, you can't say that to Mandy. She is one of the boys. Michelle turned back with a Gaelic shrug. And he said, you Brits, you have so much to learn about women. It was a poignant moment for me because I think at that point I'd been perhaps trying to morph into being one of the boys too much. And it was in that simple statement where I realised that it didn't matter, you know, where I stood. It, I was still a woman and it was really important for me to try to keep my identity, but whilst being part of the team, not just one of the boys. We were then tasked to bring the jets home. Uh, an incredible experience to be tanking them across the Atlantic. You're doing air-to-air -air refueling. Basically, you have an airliner pretty much like this, which has a hose hanging out the back with a basket on it. All you need to do is place a probe in a basket and there you go, the fuel flows. Now, you're thinking, gosh, that looks easy. Yeah, you're at about 20 to 30,000 feet. You're traveling at just shy of 400 knots. Um, all you've got to do is place this in the basket. You're told not to look at it. They say, don't look, you lunge and then you miss. Often you're in very thick cloud. You can barely even see what you're formating on. And that can lead to something called clear air turbulence. Obviously, this is no longer a stable platform, but quite frankly, it's like prodding in the dark. If you ram your probe in too hard, you're going to smash that basket and you will ingest that metal in towards potentially your engine. You have words of advice and guidance being shared, though, from your wingmen. As you're approaching, they're often going, oh, 
oh, she's missed again. Oh, it's lovely. Anyway, we landed in the Azores, woke up to beautiful blue skies. And you know what? It was incredible. I thought it was going to be an easy last day. I could not have been more wrong. As we entered the first tanking bracket, we hit this wall of cloud that was so thick, you could barely even see the aircraft next to you. And it was then we heard a chilling radio call. America have just shut their airspace. We could think of no situation in history, history whereby a continent would shut down. But we're always taught in the um, aviation world to control the controllables. And if you can't, let it go. And this mantra holds you in really good stead because when you don't understand the bigger picture, it's easy to actually get maxed out, to, to lose the ability to make decisions. But we had no idea that this was happening. But what we did realise was that we're in thick cloud. And if a continent has shut down, then a lot of aircraft might be being diverted. They might be being turned back. Do we have you know, separation from those aircraft or do we risk a mid-air collision in this thick cloud we're in? So we started to scan our airspace in front of us to clear our passageway through the cloud. And as we came over the UK, we heard the next awful radio call. There was an American aircraft carrier that was on an exercise off the south coast. There was a, obviously a five-mile exclusion zone around that ship. Unfortunately, an aircraft much like this one had not read the notice to airmen that day and was heading directly towards the ship. He also did not seem to be monitoring the radio frequencies. He was actually flying VFR and clear of any cloud. Unfortunately, everyone was trying to reach him because he was heading directly towards the ship. The Americans believed that he was a terrorist and they were loading live weapons to shoot this aircraft down. We were hearing this panning out in real time as we we're transiting across the UK. And we realised very quickly that we were the nearest airborne assets. With air traffic controls guidance, we were given radar vectors and we dived down. Before we got there, we managed to finally reach him on the radio and we got him to divert his course. He had a matter of minutes to run before he would have been shot down over UK airspace that day. And it was to change my future because I was almost immediately after that point posted out to Iraq, where I would be spending the next three years on rolling detachments. Now, for anybody in the Air Force, as you look at this picture, it's based in Ali al Salem. The boss of my squadron at the time was a gentleman called Steve Hillier, or should we call him now Sir Steve Hillier, because he is the former chief of the air staff. The gentleman to his left in the photo is the current chief of the air staff. So to say that I had the most outstanding examples of leadership on my first squadron would be an understatement. And it held me in great stead. Now, I was the only woman on my squadron. I was often the most junior and it did have its challenges. But it also led to it, its excitement, you know, and it led to it being very different. Um, you know, when we talk about the Air Force, we so often think about the air crew. But, you know, I need to give a shout out to every single one of those trades, 50 trades in the Air Force. And I genuinely mean this when I say each one is as important as the next. Because if you haven't got all of those cogs working as, as you know, as parts of that one machine, then ultimately you're never even going to launch a flight. Everyone from supply, logistics, the regiment, police, catering staff, you know, we've got the engineers, some of these guys as young as 18, and they would work tirelessly in temperatures hitting up to 48 degrees centigrade. Every time I got airborne, my life is quite literally in their hands, and I never, ever had any doubt in them. I trusted in them implicitly. I'd often go into work and be given a map that would look pretty much like this. Circles being surfaced to air missiles. The arrows are where the troops are on the move. And the stars are not as one young lady asked me at a school I spoke at before lockdown. She said, oh, are the stars because you're a girl allowed to make your map look really pretty? 
I thought, hmm, they're actually guns that shoot up to 30,000 feet. But I couldn't, you know, face breaking her heart. So I simply went, yes, who knows? She could be a recruit for the future. But then we got our targets. My job primarily was reconnaissance. I would take the photos, join the dots, and a route like this would last three, perhaps four hours. On the evening I'm going to describe, though, uh, we had done a route much like this when I'd swept up my last target and I'd started to relax. I was going home the next day and my mind was starting to wander. It was at this point when, without any warning, my nav suddenly yelled, Mandy, break right! I immediately slammed my throttles fully forward and rolled quickly to 120 degrees. I pulled hard towards the ground and he started pumping out these, the flares. They burn at an incredibly hot intensity and they act as a decoy to the surface to a missile that had just launched and locked onto the heat of my engines. This was to change the entirety of the mission. As we watched the flares go, we watched it. the flares take the missile and it exploded about two miles away from the jet. We radioed through what had happened, and I will be honest, chaos broke out on the airwaves. It turned into the most complex mission I have ever been on. I felt stretched right to the edge of my capability. I was leading my first ever combat mission that night. And despite being the most junior, every single decision was going to be made by myself and my NAV. Now, I learned more about leadership, about accountability, about decision-making, especially when we were tasked to go back into Iraq and prosecute an attack on a target. Now, you know what? Every single trip we fly, we debrief it. And I learned so much that night. And I'm sure we can pull out a few of those learning factors when I'm chatting to John afterwards. Now, when I left the Air Force uh, 10 years ago, I wasn't quite ready to hang up my fly flying boots. So I joined the volunteer reserves as an air experience flight instructor. I was based at Boscombe Down on two AEF. And I just want to finish by telling you about a young lady that I flew with. She was my last cadet of the day. I was not as motivated as I was on the first. I'll be brutally honest, my bottom was a bit numb. I'd been sitting there for most of the day. I saw this girl walk out. She had her shoulders bent over. She had quite an angry look on her face, if I'm honest. And she gets up to the edge of the aircraft. I said, hi, my name's Flight Lieutenant Mandy Higgs, and what's yours? And she went, Emily. I thought, joy to the world. Emily got in, and as she was strapping in, I looked across. She had so much eye makeup on. I was a bit concerned that... Under G-Force, maybe the weight of the mascara might prevent her from opening her eyes. But we started to taxi out. I said, have you ever flown before? No. You're looking forward to it? Suppose. Oh, it was going to be one of those trips. We got airborne and it was a stunning day. You know the sort I'm talking. Pilot's paradise, pure blue skies with white fluffy clouds. We popped through the clouds and we started to fly up, down, left, right. I always describe it as dancing in the air. She seemed to be enjoying it. She was really natural. I said, let's do some turns. We did a 30 degree angle bank turn initially. I mean, most cadets go up and down by, oh, I don't know, two or 300 feet as they take it through 360, but not Emily. She rolled in, she nailed it. So that was pretty impressive. I said, let's see if you can do a 60 degree angle bank turn. I said, this is way harder. I said, what you need to do on this one? At which point she literally stopped me by holding a hand between them and don't tell me read about that in a book somewhere. I thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be fascinating because in the Firefly, basically, when you do roll to 60, you have to add quite a lot of power, in fact, almost full power, pull back on the stick just to maintain level flight as you go into the turn. If you don't do those two things, your nose comes slicing through the horizon, you end up in a spiral descent to the ground. I've never lost any yet, by the way. So um, as she's basically saying this whole stop this, I thought, oh, do you know what? Crack on. 
So I gave her control. I have control, ma'am. She rolls in. She adds the power. She pulls back on the stick. And she indeed had read about it in a book because she did it perfectly. It was so annoying. I cannot tell you. I said, I'll tell you what, Emily. Let's become like Second World War fighter pilots. Let's skim the surface of the clouds. We'll pull some G-force. I'll sing Battle of Britain songs to you. Does that sound like fun? She said, suppose. At the end, I looked across and her mouth was twitch twitching a bit. And I thought, yes, I have broken her. It was not actually. It was wind. I said, let's finish off then with some aerobatic manoeuvres. I said, I'm going to teach you how to do a loop. I said, what we're going to do then, we're going to lower the nose, 140 knots. Tense your legs and your tummy, otherwise your blood's going to pool in your feet. As you get to 140, we're going to pull hard back on the stick, pulling four times the force of gravity. Hold that stick in towards your stomach. Look for the horizon. As you see it, we have our wings level and we yell, yee-haw, as we pull through. I said, don't be scared at the bottom though, Emily. As we go through, we'll probably um, shake violently. It means we're going through our own slipstream. Now, I did my loop, and I'll be honest, it was very smooth, no shaking. I give her control. I have control, ma'am. She pushes, she pulls, she grunts. We go through the horizon. I yelled, yee-haw! She did not. She pulled out the bottom of her loop, though, and the whole thing went, da 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 da, -da. She looks across at me, and she has suddenly got this radiant smile on her face. And that smile said to me, I'm better than you. And I thought, I'm going to break you. Oh, sorry, motivate you to be a very great pilot. No, I actually fancied breaking her. Uh, I threw everything at her. She was brilliant. Absolute natural talented pilot. We landed the aircraft. We were taxiing it in. I said, do you know what, Emily? I have been flying now for 28 years. I said, in all that time, I have never flown with anyone with so much raw, natural talent as you. I said, is this something you might want to do? And she said, I bet you say that to everyone. I was like, I could have shaken her at that point, but you're not allowed to touch them. I said, I've never said it to anybody before. Is this something you might want to do? Because you're brilliant. She said, you're joking. I said, no. And she went, oh, my God, Mum, I really can't believe you just said that because this is actually all I've ever really wanted to do in the whole of my life. And it was really funny because I was coming here on the bus. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what happens if I try really hard? And I felt one I said, stop talking. Stop talking. I prefer the grunting. It transpires in slower time that this was her dream. Ever since she had sat on her dad's shoulders at an air show, she had had dreams of becoming a pilot. And this was her first opportunity. She was so racked by a fear of failure, she had decided not to try and not to engage. Because when we give something 100% and then we fail, it's a really bitter pill to swallow. But if we don't really try, in the back of our minds, we can always blame it on that. And I said, Emily, you cannot live your life like that. I said, how many opportunities are going to go whipping by unless you grab things with both hands? I said, how are you doing in school? She went, that, I hate it. I said, that enables this. And it was this whole sense of purpose. Now, we've been talking a lot in lockdown about resilience and why it's so important. But resilience is only easy to gain when we have a purpose that we are driving back towards. If we have nothing to aim for, then that's where we struggle to be resilient. Why do you think everyone's been struggling in lockdown? Because of uncertainty. There's no end goal. And that is when we have difficulty in our own brains. Now, as soon as she could see the cogs going round in her brain, she linked working hard at school and purpose to actually being a pilot. You could see it starting to take an action plan in her own brain. I saw that girl a year later. She walked past me in the corridor. I thought, gosh, that girl's got a lot of eye makeup. I think it might be her. And she said, I bet you don't remember me. I thought, I better do, because I use you in my speech. I didn't say that, obviously. I said, uh, Emily. She said, oh, ma'am, I can't believe you remember my name. I said, best pilot I've ever flown with. She said, 
I just wanted to tell you, I got all my GCSEs, I'm doing my A-levels and I want to join as a pilot. And when she said that, it was a lightning bulb moment for myself because I'd been about to go into the airlines. I'd um, done all my commercial pilot's licenses. I'd spent all the money. I'd done all the ground school exams. And basically, my heart wasn't in that as a career, though. I had two very small boys at home. And I needed to look at my life and change my flight path. And I suddenly realized that actually having the ability to pass on this love of flying to the next generation, to be able to instill a sense of self-belief in other people and to get people to enable them to change their flight paths is going to be much more important to me. And so that's when I entered the world of speaking and of working a lot within uh, inspiring the future, going into schools, uh, talking to air cadets, university air squadrons, you know, you name it, charities, just like this one, but just to try to instill this passion and this love of this incredible career to other people. And I think it behoves all of us to overcome any fear we have of failing. And it was very interesting because I'd been saying that for some time and I finally realised one thing that I hadn't done and it was it came to dawn to me in lockdown. I'd had a book that I'd been writing for about three and a half years and I finally, finally in lockdown got it out and I realised that I'd been perhaps a little bit fearful of failing in this project. An Officer Not a Gentleman finally hit the streets in June last year. It's been the number one best-selling book on Amazon in aviation books almost ever since. It's sold around 7,000 copies now worldwide. Uh, I self-published it because one of the publishers I did contact basically sent me an email saying, plain books are for a male readership who have no interest in a woman's story. And that has been proved well and truly wrong. So what I would say is, guys, we can have dreams. You can have beliefs. But unless we put them into action, we're going nowhere. You have got to dream it, believe it and do it. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm going to pass back now to John and we can have a lovely chat. Mandy, I'm sold. I'm sold. I'm going to become a pilot. No, uh, no. It really was fantastic. Um, it, just humorous, uh, you know, inspiring and, and actually very insightful. Um, you, you're, I would say your journey, whilst anyone who takes a career as a fast jet pilot is perhaps um you know doing something relatively unusual i think what you've done has been exceptionally unusual and and you've uh, i would say been leading from the front in terms of the period of time uh, that you're in the royal air force you know and, and having to perhaps set the standards set the tone the context in on occasions you know set the balance right um but uh, what chimed with me in particular was how that air experience flight played its part in inspiring you to join the Royal Air Force in a chipmunk. And then, you know, this girl that you took flying, you know, has uh, has changed her life as well. And uh, that must feel quite nice to, you know, close that circle. It's exactly that, John, to be honest. It is that whole feeling of a circle, isn't it? Because, you know what, I think the air cadets, I just don't know if sometimes people put as much value on that as they should do. But I think the air cadets give so much to the young people that join it. It gives them an edge in life even if they don't go into the Air Force or into flying at all, what they're going to be gaining there is skills that puts them just a little bit of an edge in front of other people, their peers as well, because they'll have developed leadership skills. And and actually having that ability to put something back into that organisation through the volunteer reserve was a really wonderful, you know, period of time for me. 
Um, I had to give it up about two years ago because my work just went through the roof and um, I realised I maybe had to spend a little bit of time with my children, even though as teenagers and after lockdown, I'm quite frankly thinking that I don't need to do that much anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I have a teenager and she's just joined the air air training corps and... um, you know she's uh but i agree I, I i think that and i was an air cadet as well and i'm sure there's many people watching this who who were and maybe are um and i think it fills the gaps in doesn't it that perhaps uh, some schools at least don't provide you know teamwork uh, leadership yeah. you know self-awareness discipline all that sort of thing you know it just makes you a much more rounded individual i, I really couldn't agree with you more and uh you know it's uh that organization uh, i believe is the largest youth organization in the country there's 40,000 um really? i believe in the uk so it's uh, yeah it's pretty uh, pretty impressive um the other, the other thing that that really struck me was um you know how you would have had to have dealt with some of the um i guess the chauvinism uh you know that that sort of uh, perception that um in the fast jet world, it's it's a male-dominated world. And my question to you is, you know, why? I mean, it's as, it's it's as much of a psychological perception and acceptance that it's a, an alpha male environment, just because it's been that way for so long. But you know, you and, and others have proven it, it's it's not that at all. And I just wondered, you know, with your experience, what you feel the barriers are albeit psychological or or you know otherwise to there not being more female pilots in the royal air force or indeed you know in the civilian world as well so it's a really i mean this we we could just basically talk about this the whole time john quite frankly um and i it's this is such a subject that's so close to my heart and bizarrely in all my talks i've been doing today i'm in a big whatsapp group with lots of girls and they've been pinging me constantly about STEM and, I, and as I've been doing my talks I could just hear my phone next to me going and when I finally looked at it, it was about why are there so few women and I was like hold on a minute I'm talking about this on the screen as well <laughs> but actually it's do you know what I do think there is something about gender um I think there is something about intrinsically about STEM subjects versus non-STEM subjects about why is it that more boys do prefer those so I do think there is a slight gender differentiator there now I went to an all-girls school I did physics maths I loved those subjects you know I did them not because I knew any different I didn't know they were stem subjects I didn't know that mainly boys did those subjects I did them because loads of girls did them because we were at an all-girls school and so there was no concept of what was a boy type subject or a girl subject now what's fascinating is we are seeing it more and more in you know, obviously in mixed schools, you know, we have, um, uh, especially when you end up with girls and you go to, a, say, a sixth form college and then you, your girls go into, say, a maths class and there's only two or three of them out of 20 boys. And you think, oh, and then they start to doubt themselves a bit. And then they start to have, you know, maybe, oh, is, is this a really boy sort of subject I thought I really love physics but oh my goodness maybe I won't go into engineering if it's good and then we start to get issues so we've got to sort of tackle this right at an early stage and I'm talking primary school you know we've got if you ask boys can they do something the boys go yes if you ask girls can they do it they go no I've never done it before why don't I practice first there is a difference between boys and girls so we can't get away from that now 
There's been so many initiatives to get more women into flying. Carolyn McCall at EasyJet, her mission while she was there was to go from 7% to 12%. She had so many initiatives in place. She never made that target. Overall, I think it's, did we say 7% of women now are in the airline, commercial airline industry? And it's still so small. But why is that? And for me personally, I just think I don't get it. I mean, I think it's a fantastic career. I've got great friends that have managed to balance work and being mothers um, and, you know, having families as well. So it's exciting. It's challenging. I don't get why people wouldn't be interested. So, you know, actually, it's about changing mindset, but from a very, very earlier age. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think in terms of STEM, you know, STEM is um, really something that's been around for about five years, I would say, ish, um, you know, and I, th I think it's definitely percolating down now into all forms of society particularly the end of society that dominates my household which is which is a 11 year old and a 14 year old and and i'm seeing it in their curriculum i'm seeing it you know in the air cadets um there's a there's a new space badge the air cadets can get now so there's a, there's a space syllabus they learn about the history of of human space flight and exploration and of course that flows perfectly into stem um you know i and i I, I do I do think it's a, a stereotypical thing as well, um, being in aviation myself. But what and this is the I guess the exam question, but you know, what do you think can fix it? I mean I I, I do agree starting young, you know, um with, with children in, in, in education. Um but where where do you think the problems lie beyond the classroom? I mean, do, does do do the grown ups need to change their attitudes as well and, and you know, may, maybe um you know, try to adjust the way in which some of the, the training occurs or the recruitment, you know, what are your, what are your views about fixing it? So it's, it's interesting. I think there's a lot we can do as role models. Uh, I go back to that quote, we can't be what we can't see. Uh, and I yeah. was aware when I started on the air experience flight, um, I had been working at Boscombe before that. So I had been doing a little bit of flying already, but I was aware that when you go into the, um, like the cadets holding room where they're waiting and they get kitted up and they watch the videos, on the board there, they've got all the pilots. Every single one's a man, apart from me. And I, I just thought, my goodness, we need women to be doing this so that young girls that are coming in at the age of 13 go, oh, there are people like me doing it. It's normalised almost. Yeah. It's normalised. It's the subliminal messaging that we need to get right, right from the start. Yeah. So we do need some really strong female role models. I think that's really important. Um uh, but you have got a lot of those. I mean, there's a lot of them on social media now. I love there's so many aviatrix websites and so many people, you know, that I've come across actually mainly actually since writing my book. I wasn't massively on, into social media beforehand, but I seem to have like accelerated into social media since that. And, um, you know, it's been great having these connections made with all of these wonderful women in the commercial sector and also in the military as well. But yeah. there's also so much recruiting drives that are going on you know um it's about recognizing that perhaps the you know the women that enjoy say sports teams they're going to be classic people that might enjoy the team ethos of the military and there's a great advert that's just gone out for the RAF and actually I just shared it on my Facebook page um and that's not a plug for my Facebook page but it was just if anybody wanted to see it it's it's there on my Facebook page Mandy Hickson speaker and um Basically, it's a fantastic advert by the RAF, and it's just for International Women's Day, and it's just interviewing about 10 different women, and each one of them just says, actually, it's not about gender. The Air Force has changed 
enormously in its culture since I was in. And actually, people don't think about the fact that they're boys and girls, men, women. It's it's irrelevant. It's who can do the job well. And, and yeah. that has been such a refreshing change in the military. Honestly, I find that like a breath of fresh air now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in the boardroom, um, you know, it, it's it's happening. And and also, let's let's remember, you know, the pioneers of aviation, um, Amelia Earhart, Amy Johnson, Eileen Collins. I remember I was on my honeymoon when Eileen Collins landed the uh, the space shuttle after the wow. terrible accident in 2003 of um, Columbia. And so double the pressure, first female commander and the one that had to bring the shuttle program back. Um, and Valentina uh, Ter Teroshkova, I think she was the first female uh, cosmonaut. So regardless of gender, there's been some incredible pioneers who've set the bar. And, and it's the bit in the middle, isn't it? it it's, it's how society aligns itself. And it, it, maybe it just doesn't rest in, in the aviation um, uh, you know, market. Uh, it's probably elsewhere as well, certainly in those sort of more traditional male-dominated um, yeah. markets. And, and there's things that need to change. And I, I, I applaud you for the enthusiasm and, and, and drive that you're putting into this, because without the voice, without people like Tracy Curtis Taylor, we had on a survivability talk a, a few weeks ago, you know, people sort of accept the status quo, don't they? Yeah, they do. But I tell you what, here's an interesting one. When you get onto an aircraft and you hear the, the tannoy, hello, this is your captain speaking. If it is a woman saying it, you go, oh, it's a woman. I still yeah. do. And then I think, oh, for goodness sake, Mandy, I can't believe you've done that. Especially when I hear that the co-pilot was also a woman. I'm like, yes, we've got yeah. a flight deck. I mean, that literally makes me sort of go high five. I almost want to go running up to the cockpit and go, yeah. yes. <laughs> but I'm yeah. still surprised. And the reason you're surprised is because it's only 7% on the flight deck. And I think this is why, you know, I still get emails or I get tweets coming from people who say, oh, my daughter came home from school and she said she wanted to be a pilot and everyone in her class said, no, you can't, girls can't be pilots. And I think, where is that coming from? Yeah. You know, why is that even a thing? Um, you know, yeah. it's, I just, yeah, I mean, we are getting so many more books. I mean, Laura um, made a really good comment there about, you know, in primary schools. And um, in fact, I, I was contacted by, Har I think it was HarperCollins, and they did a book called Tara Bins. And it was basically, she said, oh, we, can you give us some experience of being a pilot? And, and they ended up writing this book for primary school children about Tara Bins' experiences. The fact she goes into a dressing up box and it's a bit like Mr. Ben in our day, you know, and she yeah. comes out as a female fighter pilot. And I was like, yes, because those are the books that we start, we want to start actually, you know, making a difference from an early age. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely true. Yeah. Now, um, I'll just uh, I'll just give you a, 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 a quick uh, opportunity to catch your breath and have a drink. Um, one of the things that I didn't say at the top of the uh, at the talk, folks, was that uh, this is a podcast. So whilst yes, you can see this on Facebook and YouTube live now, uh, you can go to um, uh, uh, Apple Music or Spotify uh, at your leisure, and you can download these uh, talks. So you won't. You may see us or you may not want to see us, uh, but you can do these. You can listen to these uh, at your leisure, whatever you're up to running or, or um, you know, just sitting in, uh, on the sofa. Um, the other thing I should say is please do send in your questions. We've got about another 10 minutes for me to uh, uh, dive a little bit deeper into Mandy's career in the Royal Air Force. I've got some really uh, 
uh, interesting questions on her operational career. So there's a little bit of a cue there for you, Mandy. Um, but uh, please do send your questions in. Um, I am monitoring the comments um, section uh, here so I can see what those questions will be. Please also like and comment uh, and share because uh, we do want to get uh, this out to the masses. And as Mandy uh, said so eloquently, we want to start changing perceptions and uh, getting everybody on the same page in terms of uh, girls and aviation. All right, uh, back to the questions. I'm going to take you uh, back to your tornado uh, time now. And there was a couple of uh, comments you, you, you made, uh, particularly about your time in Iraq. Um, one of which was the um, environment for everybody was obviously alien. Uh, the environment for you in particular perhaps had additional challenges. Um, now, you, you talked about some inspirational leaders there, both, um, you know, on operations, but also, you know, uh, as, as your uh, squadron commander. Give us some perception on how you were supported um, in terms of being the, fem the only female pilot on, on the squadron on ops um, and what adjustments you saw around you having to be made to accommodate the needs, you know, for example, in the cockpit you know, or, or um, in, 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 the, in, the, in, in when you were billeted. I mean, you know, what, what, what was this process of change that you, you saw around you? I would say not very good, if I'm brutally honest. I, and this is not me putting the Air Force down in any way, shape or form, because you know what, I, I owe everything to the Air Force. I absolutely loved it. And it was a fantastic career. I just think when they took women on, they perhaps hadn't then thought through perhaps like flying kit, for example, you know, um, we always wore male long johns with a Y front, you know, um, you know, the ability to have a wee in the cockpit still not been um, sorted out. You know, I ended up with kidney infections numerous times when I was flying because I basically don't have the ability to have a wee in the, in the cockpit. Um, but also like billeting, you know, but this is the same for any, you know, army, Navy, anything like that. You end up all in a room together and that was just the way it is. So um, I don't think the boys or the guys were very accommodate. I don't think they were particularly sensitive to actually the fact that it was probably a lot more stressful for me. I was just classed as, well, you just Mandy, get on with it. Why should it be any different for you? But it was hugely different for me because I was the only woman and you had no females to talk to and having spent you know months and months just talking to men I'm just there going I just want to talk about like the price of fish with my girlfriends you know? <laughs> men's conversation is very very different you know and there's only so much sport and politics I could discuss but what I would say is even on the, within the three years when I was on two squadron I saw it change massively in the culture I think when I first got there it was a bit grrr, eat glass you know puffed up chests a bit more very very masculine environment uh, and I would say not I wouldn't say toxic but it was perhaps going back towards that real grr, red alpha males in the th by the end of three years we had seen sort of a whole new generation of pilots and aircrew coming in and they were very very different um and you know these were guys that I could really talk to and it made me realize that the issues I'd had perhaps the first time I was in the Gulf when I was bullied a little bit by one of the guys um, it's not about gender. It's nothing to do with gender. It's about personalities. It's about yeah. people we get on better with and people we don't get on so well with. And actually, once the in my second and third year, there was a, just a different crowd of people. And suddenly I felt really happy because I was then accepted for being who I was. I was much more confident flying the jet. Um, and also 
there were just different personalities to speak to and I got on really well with them. So, mm. you know, it's not always just about gender. Um, it's about people doing the jobs to the best of their abilities. And actually, yes, it would have been nice to be a little bit more accepting. For example, not to be given the room, which was wall-to-wall -wall pornography as a joke every single time I went out there. Um, things like that would just sort of annoyed me. But it didn't yeah. get me down. Um, but bizarrely, I just want to mention something. I mean, International Women's Day was yesterday, and the whole theme was Choose to Challenge. And I want to just share one little snippet about the guys that were in that picture with me, the ones that I went through flying training with, because they were the most incredibly supportive group. There was a guy on there called Tris, uh, and Tristan Philpott um, and Rob, uh, puppy, again, just two great guys. In fact, everyone was a great guy. But they pointed out to me at one point that every single instructor on advanced flying training made a sexist comment to me every day. Just one. Nothing malicious at all. Nothing vindictive. You know, and it didn't bother me. But he didn't like it. They didn't like it. And they said, Mans, do you mind if we say something to the boss? Because actually, we're sick of hearing everyone just go, oh, we can tell which jet Mandy's parked. And it's the one that's not straight. Oh, we can tell. You know, and again, nothing hurtful. But if you're getting 20 of them a day, it starts to wear a bit thin. And I didn't, I wasn't that bothered. But this whole theme of choose to challenge around International Women's Day is, it's not about women choosing just to challenge. It's about men choosing to challenge systems as well. And these guys were so ahead of the game because they did challenge. They challenged it from a really early age. And what's really wonderful now, and I love this, is I, I've watched Tris, he's now live, living in America, um, just outside Las Vegas, and he's got a daughter and they bought an aeroplane and she is now going off flying from a really young age. I'm like going, great to see Tris. And that yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. And it, it is, uh, yeah, it's about taking the moral high ground. I've always seen that as a, as a, as a, as a mantra in business. You know, you, I think if you're honest, you've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to have the integrity, haven't you, to look around you. And, and clearly that's, there was bundles of that on the squadron. Um, and yeah, just taking gender off the table. It's all about performance at the end of the day. And, and uh, we're getting there. Um, well, let's uh, let, let's shift gears slightly. I'm seeing the questions beginning to build up now, so uh, we everyone oh. is, is uh, listening. So I'm going to just uh, lead us in nicely to those questions. Dealer's choice. So I, I, I'll go first. Um, you talk about the bubble in your um, in your presentation. Uh, explain to us what that is, both in aviation terms. Um, you know, getting yourself ready for the mission, um, but also what it actually means in terms of the mission itself. So, you know, preparing yourself to go into the cockpit and then preparing yourself for the task at hand once you're in the cockpit. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's actually a really, I love the being in the bubble. Um, and actually it's been used in lots of different industries as well now, which is really good. Things like uh, healthcare as well. If you're dispensing, you're in the bubble. And they say they're in the bubble, don't disturb them. And it's basically just um, saying, I don't need to be um, tackled with any thing that's not related to the mission that we're about to go on. So even if it's a training flight, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it's so easy in life to hit that cognitive overload by having all of these very low level inject interjections with things that don't matter at the moment. 
So basically, you manage to prioritize completely to the task in hand. And it's when you actually just focus, and you say, this is what's important now. I'm not going to let my mind wander onto the fact that I've got to sort something out with accounts that, oh, I need to sort out something about the vets. And, oh, I've got this appointment with the dentist. That's irrelevant. It's about being in your bubble, focusing on what's important. Um, and if someone comes up to you and says, oh, man, we've got a phone call for you. you go, actually, no, I'm in my bubble. And they go, OK, sorry. And I really like that. It's just a great way of classifying and getting yourself into the right mindset for what you're about to do, because it doesn't matter if it's a training mission or an operational mission. You need to be focused and you need to have your mind 100 percent on the task because it's a dangerous world, you know, um, as has been proved by countless friends that I have lost um, over the years. Yeah, yeah, of course. Absolutely. You know, it is it's an unforgiving environment, isn't it? Yeah. Aviation carries its risks, but once you're going in harm's way, uh, I, I have uh, I have no question about that at all. And um, the bubble and other measures that are trained into you, I suppose, all those years before are, are critical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I tried to say the bubble works uh, when I'm about to do a keynote speech on Zoom, but in lockdown, it didn't work so well. And I'd be having screaming arguments <laughs> with my son about doing his French and then go, <laughs> Anyway, I'm doing a speech in one minute. Leave me. Yeah. Hi, everyone. How yeah. lovely to be here. And I think, oh, I'm seething. I'm so angry. You <laughs> <laughs> say, fake it till you feel it. And uh, even if you're not feeling it to begin with, within a few minutes, I would have motivated myself and I felt better again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I had the Wi-Fi discussion with my kids earlier about Netflix and <laughs> you not losing me on the screen. <laughs> um, right. I'm going to turn to some of the questions here. So uh, I haven't read these uh, yet, so I'm going to read them as I see them. Um, so Barbara um, Wenzel asks, uh, well, says, Mandy, I'm so impressed with how supportive your RAF classmates were. It also sounds like your commanders were supportive. Did you find that there was resistance to your presence as a woman in the military flying community? Did you run into men who gave you a hard time? And how did you handle it? We've kind of touched on that, but uh, did you want to say anything specific to Barbara? Oh, well, yeah, I, I'm... The majority, I would say 99% really supportive, great friends, great colleagues, especially going through training. Um, I was just one of the team. Uh, absolutely. 100% they were all we were all together. Felt a little bit different when I got to the squadron because they didn't know me. Um, I hadn't just spent you know four years in training with these people and they've just suddenly got a woman arriving on the squadron. And it's sort of it was just us all feeling our feet for a while. There was only one incident in my entire military career, I can say, where I was bullied. Um, and it was horrific. Um, it was the first time I was in the Gulf. It was when I was writing my book, actually, that actually all the emotions of it really came back. And I found a bluey, you know, the airmail letters that yeah. I'd written to my husband. And I was reading it. I was actually in tears. I knew I said, I can't do this anymore. I've worked so hard to get here. But actually, it's not worth it. And if this is what it's going to be like, I don't want to be part of it. Well, that's horrific. You know, I, I've worked so hard to come across so many barriers to get to this point. And one individual can make your life so miserable. And what was interesting, though, John, was when we got home, my husband made me in a bar one evening go and speak to him. And I just said, are you aware just how, you know, how bad you made my life when we we're in the Gulf and, and how you bullied me. And he said, what? And his wife actually went, you did what? You know, and he said, uh, 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 and he said, no. And I said, well, and I, I said, gave him all the examples. And he went, his mouth literally hit the floor. It was a mm. Friday evening. Uh, he went off, he reflected over the weekend. And do you know what? I 
all credit to him, he called me into his office on the morning, on the Monday morning, he said, I have been thinking about what you said all weekend and you are absolutely right. I am so sorry. He got a newborn at home and he was angry that he was missing the first months of his daughter's life and he wanted to take it out on someone. That was an easy target. And mm. it was just a really good lesson for me that, you know, so often when we see bullying and hear of bullying, it's it's the bully that's got the issues. Yeah. And yet it takes a lot for the person being bullied to challenge them. But the sooner we do it, the sooner we say something to other people, then we can sort that out and rectify the situation because it's often jealousy or it's often, you know, an anger that's deep seated within themselves. Um, and it's not you that there's anything wrong with. They're just trying to vent their anger on you. And after that moment, we've also gotten really well ever since. So mm. I haven't got any sort of problems. I see him at all the annual reunions. And we always have a laugh. So it's amazing that thing. So, yes, that was one time that it was really tricky. Yeah, yeah, so, so very well said with the lots of humility there, Mandy. Um, right, there's a great comment there from Neil Tucker. Neil's one of our trustees at Airability. Clearly, you've impressed him um, uh, with some lovely words there. Um, now, um, there's another question uh, I've got here um, from uh, Jude Maloney. Um, how do the girls you speak to react to your talks? Um, do you know of any that have followed the career path uh, um, or followed your career path or want to so actually what's been wonderful um i would say bizarrely i'm finding out more about the girls that i'm inspiring at the moment through my book and when i wrote the book actually i had it with girls in mind uh bizarrely i then didn't feel it was actually hitting the mark because i thought i was getting all these comments from all of these men going i love your book and i was thinking <laughs> girls and then finally i'm getting all these contacts now on social media saying your books come at just the right time for me when I'm starting to get disillusioned because everything's online. I'm losing sort of that enthusiasm about the air cadets and going into the air force. I've read your book and I am absolutely spurred on to do it. So, and, and people going through officer training and contacting me as well saying it's brilliant. It's just what we needed. So uh, the girls and girls schools, Oh my goodness. I mean, I have had over the years, 10 years now, I mean, probably thousands of them contacting me to say you've made me think differently. Um, but I can I share one just quite funny story. Oh. I was to a school, a fairly local school in Hampshire. Uh, it was a school that was in special measures and um, I'd gone down there and, you know, it was from quite a rundown area um, of Southampton. And the head, and I did my speech, there was a girl at the front and she, I kept on noticing her, her hair was bright but blue. She got quite a lot of piercings. And... And I could see her, she's like not interested. And then I'm trying to, and then slowly I was sucking her in with the story. And by the end of it, she's like this. And yeah. um, the head teacher came up to me and she said, Oh my goodness, I noticed that this girl at the front was really interested by the end. I said, Yeah, I noticed that. It's brilliant. She said, We had to put her at the front because she's normally really disruptive. And it turns out this girl was the most intelligent girl in the school. And she'd been determined to follow all her friends and go to do um, a beauty course at the local college because that's what all her friends were doing. And yet the teachers were trying to make her go to sixth form college to do her A-levels because she's really bright. And um, this girl went up to her head teacher and the head teacher emailed me and she quoted her. She said, I couldn't pull her up for, for swearing, actually, because I was just so impressed by the impact that you'd had. And basically she went, expletive. You know what, miss, if she can effing do it, then so can I. And so she said, and so, you know what, put me down for college after all. And I thought, oh, yes, you know, that's the one. And I always think yeah. if I can get one 
one person to change their flight path after the a speech I do, well, then I would consider that a massive success. Uh, and I only get one or two like that. It's great. Yeah. Oh, that's a lovely story. Um, right. Um, Jonathan Stockham says, Mandy, great presentation. Thank you, especially the bits about uh, ATC and air experience flying. Uh, were you ever tempted to try for the astronaut program? Now, before you answer that question, I have to say, I say to my girls all the time, you know, just be, do your best, you know, aim high um, and, and you can be whoever or whatever you want to be. Um, and I think you have to, you know, when you're young, you have to, it's hard, isn't it? You haven't got the wisdom and life experience to know what that statement means. No. Um, but where was your head uh, as, as a child and, you know, thinking about the astronaut program and uh, flying? Because if you've achieved what you've achieved in, in your career, anything's possible, right? Yeah, I suppose so. Bizarrely, um, I've never really thought about that, but I got, I've got to know a wonderful uh, girl called Nora, Nora Patton, and she's over in Ireland and she is on the space programme um, and has been, you know, studying it for years. And anyone that's interested, she's known as Space Nora or something on Instagram. And you know what? I, I end up chatting to her and hearing all her stories. And I think, oh my goodness, if I was just a bit younger, absolutely, I would definitely be interested in doing that. But I think, you know, I, I'm at a different stage of life now. And um, yeah, it's probably not for me now going into space, if I'm really honest. <laughs> well, it's very interesting. NASA have uh, opened up uh, the next intake uh, for um, disabled yeah. applicants, which yeah. is brilliant. Um, okay. Um, Let's have a look here. Let's have a scroll down. Uh, Mandy, this is from Amanda Stubbs. Mandy, do you fly as a hobby now? I don't at the moment, Amanda, actually. But then neither does anybody. Um, so when I stopped flying with the volunteer reserves two years ago, um, I sort of hung up my flying boots for a while. And I don't know. It was interesting, actually. I, I probably was about ready to take a break from, from flying. But interestingly... I have just got in touch with the Women's Gliding um, Association oh, and yeah. from Lasham. And basically, they're trying to do a big launch to try to get launched. Oh, slipping the puns. Brilliant. Um, they're trying to, yeah, trying to get a lot of girls into um, gliding. And I think that might be the sort of challenge that I'm after, actually. So rather than just sort of small propeller aircraft, I think doing something like gliding where there's that little bit of a risk involved and probably a little bit more technical thinking am I actually going to be able to get it back onto an airfield um yeah that really appeals to me just to try something different because I've done a lot of you know small piston flying as well and things like that so I think it's always nice to you know have different experiences but I'm definitely going to be going up um it's when they said oh yeah we've got an in the international <laughs> big gliding competition we're hosting it next year and I went have I got long enough to qualify <laughs> Uh, well, you probably need to do a couple of nationals. <laughs> I was like, have you, have you ever glided before? I went, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, what, who, what's stopping me? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, there's a question here from uh, Mike Karavik. He's uh, one of our volunteers. Um, so after the last flight back with the surface to air missile, uh, were there any after effects uh, once on the ground? Uh, and you know, did you what did you consider that you know could have been basically? Yeah, because it's really interesting, um, Mike. So Mike and I are on Twitter together. In fact, there's lots wow. of you out there, guys. Lara. Oh, I'm seeing lots of them. 
Um, so lovely to see you all on here and have your support as well. So um, thank you for that, guys. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting one. When we fly, when you're flying, often people say, oh, do you feel fearful? And that's not the emotion you're experiencing when you're flying because you are responding to events that are happening. You're focused. It is when you get more respect, retrospective, when you have that moment to be reflective, when you get to the ground and you think, oh, that was close. And I do remember landing from that mission and we all walked back to the block. And there's a photo I've got, actually, and I think it might even be in my book. I can't remember. But we're sitting around. There's a hubbly bubbly pipe going apple flavoured tobacco or something because we all had them in the Gulf. And um, everyone's just sitting outside and someone and there's no alcohol in the Gulf at all. And someone's wife had sent them a gin and tonic, a miniature gin and tonic. It was, <laughs> And they went, let's crack open the gin. And we passed this miniature bottle of gin round all eight of us up, you know, and then on to the next one. Um, and it was a, it was a moment where I did think, oh, but for the grace of God, that was quite close. Um, I didn't tend to tell my mum and my boyfriend about those until I got back. I went, oh, I had a really close call out there. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think over time you sort of forget about just how powerful the emotions are when you land. But yeah, it certainly was a pretty close call. Yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah. Um, right, you can probably see the chat yourself as well. Judy Slater um, is basically saying, you know, once you'd had children, um, how did your attitude change in terms of facing danger? Um, you know, I suppose when you're unmarried without children, you, uh, you, 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 you face the risks more or less on your own, but then you've got others depending on you. Did your, did your mindset change at all? Yeah, absolutely. Judy, it's a really good question, actually. And I do believe it did. And I, I don't know. I'd love to talk to the men about this really honestly, because I don't know if it is a woman man thing, you know, but once I had had children, that propensity to risk probably did change. Um, but also my ability to perhaps go straight back out to a war zone changed as well, because I'm now mother of two young boys and I had my two children in very, very quick succession. It was a very productive ground tour, should we say. Um, and um, yeah, so I had a four month old and a 20 month old. And I was told that basically I had to go back to the front line or be an instructor at Valley. And at that stage, I'm thinking, my goodness, neither of those is going to work for me because, you know, I've got two babies. What am I going to do with them if I go back to the front line, you know? And also, you're, you're right, Judy. It was, there was a sort of a definite feeling of, I used to think if I died, and I, and I mean this really honestly, I, I used to think, well, if I die, then ultimately it's very sad for my parents, my boyfriend, you know, my friends, but ultimately no one's dependent on me. But the second you've had children, it does change it a little bit. I mean, how do you feel about that, John? Did you feel well, a shift at all when you had kids? Yeah, I did. Um, and uh, I was listening to a podcast only a couple of days ago. Uh, it's called uh, Pilot Episodes with Dunk Mason, Parky, oh, yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, Goddard. And uh, they had... Oh, I can't remember the chap's name. He was in Gulf War One, GR ones on the low-level night missions. Um, I forget his name. Never mind. But that question was posed in in the talk, um, and um, you know, pre and post children. The answer that he gave was pretty much exactly the same as yours. Yeah. Um, and I enjoy flying. You know, done some display flying, and I think it does. Your your um, you know, your perception of risk changes entirely when you have people who depend on you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Can I just pull up a quick one there from Jonathan, who just says cool. um, on behalf of his wife, Helen, 
um, his very better half, he says, um, have I ever suffered from imposter syndrome? Uh, and I did touch on it very briefly as I was speaking, actually. Um, yeah, I do a lot. And I think as well in my speeches, um, I also have these this fear sometimes of imposter syndrome. And I mean, at one point I got asked to speak to the United Nations. Um, it was to the new... So the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna about just culture and cultural change and how the aviation sector had dealt with cultural change to create the just culture. And how could the basically how could the atomic energy sector, you know, mirror this? Well, I said, of course I can do that. And then I sat there thinking, oh, my goodness, when are they going to find out? I don't really know about. And by the time I got to speak, I had almost talked myself out the fact that I had any knowledge whatsoever, that I was absolutely I was almost like. I've just come out of school and I know nothing, you know. And then I sat on the podium and I started listening to all these men talking. And I thought, do you know what? Actually, I've got a lot more to say than them. And it's more interesting and it's way more relevant. And by the time I stood up, I talked myself back into the fact that I had something to bring to the game. But what I would say is imposter syndrome is a really it's a big deal. And, and yeah. women tend to suffer from it a lot more than men. I'm not saying men don't suffer from it, by the way, and I know a lot of men that do, but it seems to be something that women have going on in the background a lot more, that they talk themselves out of stuff. They talk themselves out of applying for jobs. They talk themselves out of putting themselves forward for things, and they talk themselves down. So an example for myself would be I'm on the Victory Services Club um, committee as a um, you know, board of trustees, and we had to do a skills matrix, and it was from naught to four, and it was for leadership and this, that. And I gave myself all twos and threes. And the uh, PA to the um, CEO contacted me and she said, Mandy, I said, yes. And she said, I'm going to give this back to you because you've given yourself all twos and threes. And every single man has given himself all threes and fours. In fact, most of them have just given them straight fours. But you haven't. And she said, even in leadership, you've given yourself a three. And I was like, yeah, I know. But I think that's fair. I've always got space for improvement. And she went, Every man has given himself fours. Can you just put all your marks up a bit? And I went, ah! and actually, it's really ridiculous. But I sort of talked myself down on my own abilities. And I just think, how often do women do that? I think we do quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, quite. Well, that's a very, really honest answer. Um, there is a question here from um, uh, Andrea Lowndes, or Andy, as we know her. She's a, an absolute rock at her ability. Um, so hello, and, uh, Andy. Uh, she says, great talk, thank you. If you hadn't made it as a pilot, what would have been your second choice of career? Policewoman. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh. I was def I've was i got something about uniform. Um, obviously, I'm married to a Navy guy, so yeah, I've definitely got something about uniform. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? No, I was, um, my definite B plan was to join the police force. And actually, in the speaking world that I've been doing, I, I speak a lot to different police forces all over the country. And um, in fact, quite a few of them, when I say, oh, I might have been a police officer had I not joined the Air Force. And they've said, well, we have got this scheme where we take on people from different professions. They go in straight as a, um, as you know, as I can't remember, is it comes, uh, chief, not chief constable, but they go on, come in at quite a fast track level. Yeah. Would you be interested? I'm like, oh, maybe I've got a second career in the police after all. Who knows? But, yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I don't know. There's something about it. Maybe I'm just a process follower. <laughs> <laughs> you like Shelley. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I can honestly say, for me, this has been one of the most entertaining talks we've done. Um, I haven't seen the comments uh, so um, lit up and full, uh, not just questions, but just comments of, 
you know congratulations and support for all of all you're doing uh so so mandy um i'm conscious of the time you've you have a family and the book we to talk about the book right, no, it's only um, because Amelia popped it up on the screen and i just want to say i'm loving your book thank you very much oh, Amelia. it happens to be oh. there so i just thought i'd wave it <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 please. Well, we will. So, where can we find you? So, um, website, uh, social media, tell us yeah. where we can find you and learn more. Well, I'll tell you what, if we just pop and we can, um, Chad, if you could just bring up my screen again, uh, then on that shared screen that's got all of my social media contacts on it. There you go. So, on Facebook, I'm Mandy Hickson Speaker, Instagram the same, and Twitter, I'm at Mandy Hickson. And I think on LinkedIn, I'm at Mandy Hickson as well. But I've also got my own website, which is just Hickson LTD, I think Hickson Limited, um, and my book's on Amazon. So if you just Google it on Amazon, it's there. So guys, you know, or if you want to, if you want a signed copy, I also do do signed copies. Um, I know I donated some to the uh, charity auction, and in fact, quite a few of the guys have contacted me, and I've sent them out to them as well. So um, oh. they were unlucky in the charity. Um, <laughs> I've got them in the post. So if you desperately want a signed copy, please just contact me through my website or social media. Well said. And um, I am going to be getting a copy of your book for my 14 year old. I think she's old enough to be uh, uh, learning a few life lessons from you now because she doesn't listen to me. <laughs> well, neither do mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's been thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, Mandy, thank you ever so much. Um, we are, we've got some uh, big plans uh, for some more virtual events, uh, Mandy, which you and I spoke about uh, before uh, before this talk, which um, you know, I, th I think we should involve you on as well because you really are a very inspirational, entertaining, and informative uh, uh, speaker. So thank you ever so much for joining us this evening, and uh, we wish you a, a very pleasant evening. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, and guys, thank you for all your support out there. Honestly, you've been fantastic. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, there we go. So what a great evening that was. And uh, as, you, as uh, Mandy said, you can follow her uh, on, uh, the so on social media or pick up her book. Um, so uh, we've, uh, we really thank Mandy uh, very much for what I think she said was the sixth or seventh talk today. Um, so it's been a busy, a busy week for Mandy. Um, right. Well, as I said earlier, you can, uh, you can uh, still view this uh, at your leisure uh, as a podcast on Spotify uh, or via Apple Music. Uh, please do continue to uh, share uh, this talk to get uh, to a wider audience so we can tell the story of airability and, uh, of course, women in aviation, which Mandy uh, really so eloquently uh, shared with us this evening. I do want to tell you about a couple of, of really big events that are coming up. Uh, one is this coming Saturday at 6 p.m. It's the Armchair Aurora. Now, those of you who um, have attended this in the past, the live event, will have enjoyed a flight in an aircraft, all the lights turned off above the Arctic Circle, uh, looking out the window to see the incredible Aurora Borealis. Well, we're bringing that to your uh, homes uh, on Saturday. Uh, we've got uh, John Colshaw, uh, the TV comedian and uh, also astronomer, who is going to be hosting the evening. Uh, and also Pete Lawrence, who you'll have seen off TV, uh, who is uh, himself an accomplished astronomer, uh, talking you through uh, all sorts of things related to this incredible natural phenomenon. So if you're around on Saturday night, it's free to view. Uh, I assure you it's going to be a fun and entertaining evening. What we also have coming up in May is uh, the second instalment of the uh, Armchair Air Show. Uh, really exciting things developing uh, that I'm afraid I can't tell you about right now because otherwise I'll upset the guys and girls at uh, Blackbush because they're going to put a... Uh, 
a statement out about that very soon. But uh, 29th of May, mark it in your diary. It's going to be one incredible afternoon. Right, that's it from me. I hope you enjoyed this evening, and I very much look forward to talking to you very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>